I'm Lauren. Hello, I'm Sarah. And welcome to Montalino Mama. Welcome back to another episode of the Multilingual Mamas podcast. Today, we're going to talk to Julio Torres, a fellow linguist and heritage speaker of Spanish himself. He's an advocate of bilingualism, particularly in K through 12 public education. And in his role as an associate professor at the University of California, Irving, he teaches courses in Spanish English bilingual education, which is also one of his primary areas of expertise and the main reason why we're talking to him today. As parents, we want to learn about the benefits of language arts instruction in general and of heritage language instruction in particular. So thank you, Julio, for accepting our invitation for the enlightening conversation I'm sure we're about to have. Okay, no, thank you for having me. I'm super honored to have been invited to your podcast and congratulations. Yeah. Welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, so we usually start with um, just asking people about their personal background. So can tell us a little bit about what languages uh, you speak and how and when you learned each of the languages you speak. Yeah, so I um, so I am originally from Puerto Rico. Um, so I was born in Puerto Rico, but when I was one, so I grew up, obviously, my first language is Spanish. Um, but when I was one, we moved to New York City and we lived in New York City for 10 years. Okay, um, so I started school um, in English. I was enrolled in mainstream English program, no bilingual education program. Um, and to the point where I remember as a child, um, my kindergarten teacher not understanding what she was saying, a lot of what she was saying. Um, if I always associated to Charlie Brown, want, 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 like that sort of, <laughs> you know, that's how I felt. Um, so yeah, so then I grew up speaking English and then my, my family decided to move back to Puerto Rico um, um, when I was about to start middle school. So that was a culture shock, right? Because obviously English was my dominant language. And then I was going to Puerto Rico where no bilingual education, right? So it was thrown um, into Spanish. Um, and even though we spoke Spanish and we read a little bit of Spanish because my mom would read to us in Spanish, I did not have obviously the literacy skills, right? Um, so that was quite an adjustment. And you know, I took an English class, but it was very basic. Um, we would learn like things like the verb to play, right? So, but I always say that those couple years that we went back to Puerto Rico before we moved back to New York City were so critical to my heritage language development because for two years I only spoke Spanish and I did all my education in Spanish. So um, um, even to the fact where teachers would say Julio just came and he puts his accents and you guys been here forever and you still don't <laughs> put your accents in, in words, right? Um, so that that sort of Sorry. thing. So yeah, so um, <laughs> then I we moved back to New York City. And I remember vividly, because this is right, will be probably interesting to listeners, um, my family having a debate, my cousins, my aunts, my great aunts, right, on whether I should be in a bilingual education program or, or not, wow. because, uh, because I spoke English, right? So my English was still, even though for two years, my English got shaky because my sister and I shifted to Spanish completely after a few months in Puerto Rico. So I remember my family, my younger cousins were the ones saying, don't put him in bilingual education. He can speak English. My great aunts were like, no, but he needs to maintain his Spanish. Right. So um, and I remember those debates vividly. Right. So I was already like, I I feel like, yeah, I was already training to become a linguist and a, a scholar of bilingualism. And I wish I could be know the knowledge that I know now, right? To kind of advocate for my own 
right education um, Little so yeah yeah so yeah so then yeah and then we moved we ended up moving to Pennsylvania right for family reasons you know uh, with my stepdad having daughters right I have three older sisters stepsisters um, who lived in Pennsylvania and they had children so we moved so then I started high school in Pennsylvania and when I moved to Pennsylvania um there there wasn't any I, I, I was put in a Spanish three course where I was learning how to say to cook and and things like that. So um, the Spanish teacher became very frustrated with me because yeah. I did not want to participate because I, she said, you're too good for us. And I'm like, well, yeah, yeah I kind of am because yeah. <laughs> I already know all of this vocabulary, right? So then there I switched. So I was kicked out of Spanish, basically. Um, and I started taking French and Italian. So we, um, we only had a year of Italian. So I kept on with French. And then in college, I majored in French and Spanish education. Nice. Um, yeah, and that's sort of my trajectory. Um, yeah, in terms of language learning and becoming a multilingual um, individual. And Love when it. your mom remarried, did your stepdad also speak Spanish, or was? Yeah, yeah, he's okay. he's Puerto Rican. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they got together when I was like one or two when she moved. Oh, to New okay, York. okay. So it was, yeah, very early. Yeah. Um, so yeah, at home we only we spoke in Spanish to our parents, but my siblings and I we spoke in English to one another and the kind of dynamics around the kitchen table, right? Or the dining table, I should say. Um, we can be in the same conversation. I would switch to English to my siblings and then back to Spanish speaking to our um, parents. Um, what's been interesting in my family dynamics because with my siblings, I always spoke English. Our parents passed away. My mom passed away six years ago. My sister has changed our language relationship. It was all her, where wow. now we both switch a lot between mm -hmm. Spanish and English and I think I haven't studied my sister or asked her why but it was as a linguist obviously right I'm sensitive mm -hmm. to language use um and she, I think it's a way for her to keep hold on to Spanish because Wall Street probably doesn't use Spanish as much um mm -hmm. and so on so that was a very interesting dynamic so with my sister now we code switch a lot between Spanish and English awesome are you the older sibling or yes, the younger I'm the one? oldest yes okay mm -hmm. that's yeah. awesome mm -hmm. So you, I think you touched on this a little bit, but growing up, did you ever feel insecure about your language skills? And was it more in one or the other? Did it depend on what you were and what time this happened? Yeah, I think for both. I think one and the other. So what happens when you grow up between two cultures, right? You never feel that you belong to one of them fully. And I still I still feel that way now as an adult, as a person, right? As a researcher who understand these issues, right? A little better because on understanding the scholarship. So yeah, you always feel because people make comments on your language use. So whether um, people would make comments on my use of English, right? Certain sounds I would produce, which now, right? We have a whole field of Latino English, right? Um, um, colleagues who do social linguistics um, or even the use of Spanish as well. So when I was training to be a Spanish teacher, um, you know, my supervisor would correct some some of my use of Spanish, right? Sort of to kind of try to be like more standardized, pronouncing my S's, right? And now, of course, as a linguist, I know that most of the world aspirates and deletes and and mm -hmm. so on, but I did not have that knowledge, right, at the time. So yeah, so it it comes from both ends where you're not good enough in each one. Um, so that produces, of course, a lot of linguistic insecurity um, in, in as individuals, right? And now, now, you know, obviously knowing the research and understanding really the dynamics of bilingualism, that bilinguals are not two monolinguals in one, 
So now I'm kind of nicer to myself, right? And sort of understand those things uh, because I understand those things. Um, but even recently, I, I wrote a chapter for a handbook that's coming out in Spanish. And I feel comfortable now with my Spanish. I have all my degrees. I did a master's degree in Spanish literature in Madrid. I did, I have a PhD which in Spanish linguistics. So I'm very confident with my Spanish. I teach in Spanish. I teach graduate courses in Spanish. So, um, but even recently, um, um, I, again, writing this book chapter, my editor pointed out a use of the subjunctive that I should have used. And I'm like, well, it doesn't really sound subjunctive, right, in that case. And I did even a Facebook crowdsourcing kind of thing. I remember. Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> and everyone had disagreements. So I felt better because I was like, so it's funny how my linguistic insecurity started creeping up, right? Because I'm like, oh, maybe it's my heritage um, bilingualism that I'm, I'm using um, the subjunctive. So yeah, so it comes it creeps once in a while, right? Um, despite mm -hmm. the fact that I understand um, these dynamics a little yeah. better. So for all the kids out there, even Spanish professors with a PhD in Hispanic linguistics sometimes feel insecure. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good, I don't know if it's a good message, but yes, yeah, a good message. Yeah, right? no, I mean. Say that we all go through these insecurities, absolutely. Yeah, yeah but even those of us who grew up monolingual, for a long time, and then they became dominant in the other language. Mm -hmm. it, it just happens. Exactly. Like, uh, mm -hmm. So talking more about mm, culture and identity now more than language, how would you describe your identity, your cultural identity or ethnic identity? How do you feel? Yeah, I think, yeah, um, these days, <laughs> um, I would say that I feel like my identity um it's at a crossroads, right? Because of my experience, even my Spanish. Sometimes when I speak Spanish, people don't know where I'm from. Um, so I, I spend a lot of time during the summers in Mexico. I've been teaching in Mexico um, and, you know, living now in Southern California. People guess, oh, you're from Venezuela, you're from, right? Um, mm -hmm. But they never, usually don't guess Puerto Rico, right? And I, I feel sometimes it's because they think everyone from Puerto Rico speaks like they're singing reggaeton, right? Which is <laughs> very popular, right? We all don't sound like Bad Bunny, right? Um, so, so yeah, so I think then, so what you start accepting is that your identity is fluid, your identity changes, is at the intersections, right? Um, with other identities. So, um, so obviously, even when I go back to Puerto Rico, right, I, I, my language changes. Um, when I'm in Spain, because again, I studied in Madrid, so I know my vocabulary changes um, when I'm there. Um, and I tend to be a dialect accommodator. So um, I'm always, I always want to fit in in whatever context I'm in. And it might be because of my upbringing, right, where you feel so, you yeah. never fit anywhere. So yeah, so I have accepted my identity as being hybrid and that it's not fixed and that we're constantly navigating different context and depends of the environment. So this is going to, right, perhaps prompt different identities to show up um, and so on. So we're constantly navigating all of these. Um, I feel for me, at least constantly, I'm navigating all of these. Mm -hmm. I think we, we kind of guess at this point, but what made you want to pursue a career in language acquisition or bilingualism or Spanish? What drew you and what drew you particularly to bilingual education or instruction as, a, as an area of interest in your research? 
Yeah, um, it was being a high school teacher. So I taught Spanish, um, high school Spanish for six years. Uh, I thought originally my, again, my first master's degree is in Spanish literature. So I thought I was going to be a literature scholar. Um, and that was, I was training to be. And, you know, whether depends on what side I saw the light or I saw the darkness, I don't know. <laughs> so, um, but it depends on with whom you speak. Um, but during my, my master's degree, I took a course on second language acquisition. Um, and I remember, I'm, you know, and I was a high school teacher and I was like, why don't I know this? I feel like I should have, someone should have taught me this um, in order to be a more effective teacher. Um, and so that, that started the journey. Then I became department chair and I was in charge of, you know, I was department chair for our school district in charge of three schools, a high school and two middle schools. And, you know, part of that has to do with curriculum and curriculum development and so on. So in finding out about second language acquisition research, I'm like, I feel like that should inform our curriculum development. So that was basically what prompted me to sort of, I was doing a master's, a second master's degree in um, curriculum development. Um, and because I love curriculum development and I just then I said well I think I want to do something else and then that's how second language acquisition um, became an interest but also then um, with the heritage piece I had students Latinx students in my Spanish classes um, I taught advanced placement Spanish mm -hmm. uh, there were students and they were they did worse than the other students in the class and it was on the AP I, exam you mean? Exactly. Well, on the AP, in the AP class, um, they probably did well on the AP exam. They would do well. But mm -hmm. in my class, they would not because I obviously was not teaching right um, with their needs in mind and with mm -hmm. and having in mind their language experience. Right. That they brought in. So, you know, I would use terms like pluperfect subjunctive and they would look at me like, OK, like what? You know, like I have three heads um, and so on. So that was also part of that was also interesting to me. Then, you know, what does it mean if you're a heritage speaker and you are in a Spanish class taking classes like, you know, what does that experience, the experience that you bring from home? What does that mean when it interacts with instruction? So anyway, those type of questions led me to um, to the field of acquisition. I wasn't sure if I was going to do heritage speakers when I started the doctoral program, but then as I kept on reading, I became more and more interested uh, when I started reading like early work by Silva, um, Carmen Silva Corvalan's work, especially um, her book um, in Los Angeles, right? So that had an impact and influence and also the work of Guadalupe Valdez, right? Um, in reading her work really kind of set what were my big questions um, that I wanted to research. Great, um, I think that's a perfect segue into just talking a little bit about your research. We've, on this podcast before, we've talked about dual immersion schools, but I get the sense that you research um, just a Spanish class or for heritage speakers, not per se, uh, like bilingual schooling? Um, so yeah, so my, my work has been more on heritage speakers, but now I am um, starting to become interested in dual immersion schools. And part of it is because of an administrative role. Um, I am the director of the Spanish language program and at UC Irvine, but also we have developed um, a Spanish English bilingual education minor. So um, now we are, I am in the task of training um, future dual immersion teachers or individuals who want to work in um, schools in California and 
not necessarily even in dual immersion, but they realize they're going to have bilingual, multilingual students right. in their classes. So we recently have become an official bilingual authorization program accredited by the state of California um, that includes our minor all the way to our master's degree. Um, so it's a very exciting time um, to be at UC Irvine. So yeah, so that's sort of my connection now. Um, and right now we are running a study looking at teacher development um, with students who were in our program and who are now in a dual immersion classroom. So we're trying to collect data on what were their needs, how did our program meet their needs or not, right? What were areas that they needed? So I am beginning um, to get into that work. And I'm also working on a manuscript looking at second graders um, and fourth graders um, that attended dual immersion schools versus those who did not. And these are Latinx children from mm -hmm. the state of Texas. So we are looking at the effects of instruction. Um, there's a lot of data of students who you can see that attended a dual immersion program because the teachers reported on the language and the classes, right? Um, I should say the, the content courses and what language they were taught. So, um, so yeah, so right now that manuscript, the results are showing that, right, that yes, that the dual immersion has an impact on students who are growing up with Spanish as a heritage language. That's um, awesome. Yeah, and especially looking at, um, so in her, her assessments, right, there are a bunch of structures. Obviously, I, I've been working with adults, heritage speakers, right? But even in the structures that are vulnerable, that we see that are vulnerable in, um, for adult heritage speakers of Spanish, what mm -hmm. we're seeing is that instruction, um, dual immersion instruction is playing a role. So that's sort of a little bit where I'm getting now into more so, looking at dual immersion bilingual education. Julio, more in line with the, um, I would say more like experimental research that you've done that focuses on instructed heritage language acquisition. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that? How would you define this new field, right? This instructed heritage language acquisition, maybe what is a heritage speaker? Mm -hmm. And uh, would you equate this field more with language arts or with foreign language classes? How would that fit for parents who are trying to learn yeah. about it? Yeah, that's a good, yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, so the field is new, right? We know very little still of the effects of instruction on heritage language learners. Um, so recently, my colleague Melissa Bowles and I, we published uh, what we call an exploratory meta-analysis. So for those, for your listeners, right, a meta-analysis is basically a study that takes a bunch of other studies, right, that have looked at, at a particular question, phenomenon. So in this case, we were looking at the effects of instruction on heritage students, right? And what we did was try to synthesize those studies to see what the data are showing. So I wanna be very careful to say um, there are not many studies. So this is just a first look, okay? Um, so, uh, you know, I, I just wanna make sure that um, I, I mentioned that. Um, and what we found is that instruction is having a pause. So the good news is that instruction is having a positive impact on heritage students learning. Um, however, um, however, we also looked at age, and this is sort of why I wanted to start looking at bilingual uh, heritage children. It seems that instruction has a bigger impact on children than it does on adults, okay? So, 
So yeah, so these are like college age kids, right? That are in, are basically tested in these studies. It doesn't mean that they're like not. There's no remedy for them, or there is, right? Um, if they want to learn um, the heritage language, is that we're seeing that the impact is greater for children, right? And in this study that I mentioned with the second graders, and they were tested in second grade and third grade, fourth and fifth grade. So there's a whole year that we've seen whether or not what the progress is, right? There are other variables that are showing what was the impact, right? What had a bigger impact for some of the children, but overall, it's still big, right? Um, overall. So with the sec with adults, it's a little different. Um, so it is positive, but when we, and I want to be careful of not comparing heritage students to second language students. But again, because the field is new, right? We sort of make comparisons just to see, give us an idea of where we are. With second language students, all the meta-analyses that have been done, the effects of instruction are large, yeah. right? Versus ours, that was a moderate effect. So I'm trying to unpack, and a couple of the studies going on in my lab right now, we're trying to understand that, uh, right? Um, and we can say that maybe instruction is just not as urgent for heritage speakers, right? Because again, heritage speakers communicate effectively in their communities, right? You, you know, code switching or translanguaging, whatever your framework is, right? Um, they are using all of their resources to communicate. So maybe they don't see it as something urgent. Mm -hmm. um, but as second language students, right, who come basically with a blank slate um, and they need language. Um, but the other thing is, well, maybe the theories or the frameworks of teaching are not that effective for heritage students. And because it's a new field, we are still relying on a lot of theoretical models and methodological approaches that are used with second language students. Mm -hmm. So it might be that they're just not appropriate. So that's what we're trying to unpack further, right? Because right, many students um, don't have the advantage of being in a dual immersion program mm -hmm. as children. So we still need to care about what happens when you become an adult and you start learning the heritage language in a classroom. Right. Beyond just the language instruction in a heritage language classroom, can you talk a little bit about the negative experiences that we hear a lot about of heritage students not feeling welcome or feeling ignored or like they're trying to get an easy A, any of uh, those kind of yeah. Yeah. It's um experiences. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, if programs are not designed well, it can be a traumatic experience for heritage speakers. First of all, many heritage speakers already come with different traumas, right? Um, into the classroom because again, these messages that they're Spanish or they're Korean or they're Mandarin or Vietnamese is not good enough sometimes comes from their same communities, right? Um, from families, right? Um, so these, what we call language ideologies, right? Which are belief systems that people have about language tend to be deficient, right? Um, or expect that the heritage student, the, her or the heritage um, child should have equal command of both languages. And we know that's not the reality, right? That we should not be expecting that. So these things produce a lot of trauma. And, um, and so if heritage courses are not created, understanding not only their linguistic needs, right? We need to, right? We, right they're signing up for classes that they want to learn and they want to expand what we call their bilingual range, right? But the effective needs are very important. So I often say in our heritage courses, 
um, we do what I call linguistic therapy at the beginning, right? <laughs> because we're trying to them, inform them of, of them understanding. We want them to understand their own bilingual experience and that it's perfectly fine. And in our program, we're not trying to fix anyone, right? That's not why you come here, you continue using your linguistic resources as you are using them. Um, what again, a lot of these students want to major in Spanish, minor in Spanish. So what we're trying to do is expand so that eventually they become what I, you know, code switching ninjas, right? That they can code switch not only between Spanish or English, but between different registers, right? Um, so, so that's sort of the purpose. So what happens a lot of times is that students have may have traumatic experiences if what's being promoted in the Spanish class, even if it's for heritage speakers sometimes, and I'm like, I look at syllabi, I'm like, oh, that's not, like, that's not a course design for heritage speakers, um, is that it exacerbates, right, their linguistic insecurities, um, and, and it worsens, right, because they then have this message that they don't know how to speak Spanish, um, and so on. So, yeah, it can be a negative um, experience, and then a lot of them sometimes get a C, and then, or a C in class, and then there's like, oh, well, you speak Spanish, you're supposed to get an A, right? Um, which is ridiculous because people who, there are people who speak English and take English classes and not everyone gets an A in English classes, right? Um, so yeah, so but we need to be mindful of those things. And, you know, because I'm in the field, I think, oh, we're making so much progress. But then recently I had to prove syllabi from other, from community colleges trying that are having heritage classes, which I think is exciting. But when I look at the syllabi, I had to basically reject all of them um, because I'm like, this is just a literature course and you just put the name heritage on it, right? Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with heritage speakers taking literature courses, but it doesn't align with our curriculum and what we're doing um, in our program. So there's still a lot of education that needs to be done. So parents, when your children, right, become teenagers or taking, you know, and people get excited. Oh, good. They're going to take, you know, our family language Korean, right, at school. Parents need to be very aware of the type of messages they're getting um, in those courses, right? Um, it has even happened with my own brother who took a Spanish for Heritage Speakers class at his high school, actually the high school where I graduated from too. And, you know, he was told by the teacher constantly like, oh, you guys just don't know how to conjugate verbs. You don't know how to do Spanish. And they would do ridiculous activities like circling verb forms, right? Um, and I always wanted to call his teacher, but he, right? He said, I will be more, he said, you know, I would be mortified um, mm -hmm. that you do that. So again, there is a lot of, yeah, a lot of negative experiences can that can happen. So parents need to keep that in check. Mm -hmm. So what would you recommend if a student comes home and tells their parents, oh, my teacher said, that's not how you say whatever, beans. Yeah. Yeah, I think what we do in our classes is um, with our students, I would say the same thing is what we try to promote what's called critical language awareness, so that the students are aware of the relationships between language, power, right, um, all of these issues. Um, and I think what's important that parents understand what are different language ideologies that people may have and sort of have these conversations with the children, like, you know, um, your teacher's operating under this type of language ideology, the way they see language as 
is supposed to be spoken, but you know that's not how we see language, right? And language is more complex and more fluid and more, right? So I think that parents need to be educated also the way we educate, we're trying to educate our students on critical language awareness. Mm -hmm. Parents need to do that um, so that the children understand where the teacher, where the teacher stands in her or his or their ideologies, right? Um, and, you know, for our program, you know, whether our students want to burn down the, burn down the place, right, <laughs> and revolt, that's up to them, um, right? They have the agency, how they want to use that information, but, right, in other cases, students may not have power, they might be in a position where they don't have power to challenge, right? But the fact that they at least understand, okay, this person is operating under this ideology. Mm -hmm. So I want them to be able to identify it. I want them to be able to name it, right? And mm -hmm. how they react to that, it's up to them, right? Because again, you just cannot, you know, um, just burn down the house necessarily where you are, right? And, and you know, and have a revolt. Um, so yeah, I, so I think parents need to be educated in different language ideologies so that they're able to have these conversations with their children, right? Um, so that their children can understand um, where this is coming from. Beyond the particular advice for this question that Lauren just asked you, this particular question, um, Based on your research and what you've learned about language acquisition for heritage speakers or in general, uh, what would be your advice uh, for parents in general? What are things that parents need to know so that they make an informed decision helping their kids navigate potentially bilingual education or just like Spanish education if they're having bilingual children in school? Should um, they take Spanish in college? Yes. Right. Um, well, <laughs> well, in our university, yes, I would say. Um, yeah, so I think, yeah, that's a good question. So I think parents need to be aware of these dynamics. Um, what are the courses offered? I would ask parents to ask for the curriculum, um, ask for the syllabi. Um, what are the goals of the course? You know, what are, you know, especially for high school, right? Talk to this teacher said, you know, my kid is a heritage speaker. We speak the language at home. They, you know, there's linguistic insecurity associated with that. How are you going to, is the instruction the same or different, right? So we know that from the research, even though we don't have a lot of research, but we know that heritage students respond differently to instruction. So you can be confident to ask the teacher or the, the department, okay, at the high school, right, at the college level, right, you want probably your kid to be more of the advocate, right, um, and, and so on, but for high school um, or middle school is sort of getting, trying to get a philosophy or an ideologies about what that department is about, okay, um, and, I, and I think that's important as starting point. Can I, can I quickly interrupt? I'm curious, in your right. years as a high school teacher, you say it was high school, middle school, I can't remember, mm -hmm. when you were teaching, how many Spanish-speaking parents did you come talk to you about this? Have you seen this scenario happen? Because I'm really curious. No, I really would wish, right? So these are reflections of mine when I was a high school teacher, right? Um, no, they're not, right? Um, and depending where the family is, right? Um, so I taught in, a, I would say, an upper middle class, predominantly white school district, right? But there were families moving in from New York City, Right. A lot of students of Dominican descent because there was a church camp, you know, in the area. So those students were coming to our district. So a lot of them, they're not speaking English, others. Um, so, so that's how my awakening began. Right. Because a lot of the students would tell me, well, you know, you're teaching this 
you know, I had a student, really smart student who said the Spanish that you're teaching, these kids are not going to be understood in the Dominican Republic, or no one is going to understand them, or they're not going to understand right people he was right because yeah, i was very such a standardized variation right um but what i learned through this student he taught me a lot is that even though he didn't use a standardized spanish he spoke actually a very stigmatized variation of dominican spanish um when i would give him poetry when we would do some literature he had the most insightful comments um to provide um so if i was only judging him by his language skills Right. I would totally have missed that he is super smart, has really a, a right, a, a, an edge for analyzing poetry and so on. And I did completely something different with him. I was not doing grammar with him. We were doing more literature and we would do individual things because, again, he would make these insightful comments. So I think so I think parents sometimes, depending especially the socioeconomic status, right, um, are sometimes afraid to ask. Um, but I think parents have the right to ask and advocate for their children and just to make sure that, that you know, the classroom that they're, right, where their children are going to take Spanish or Korean or Vietnamese, you know, um, is an inviting environment for their children, right, in order to succeed. And may right. feel confident or not, or know, share some of what their variety is, say, you know, at home, just so you know. We mm -hmm, use both mm -hmm. instead, you know, for example, instead exactly. of do you know what mm -hmm. that means? Mm -hmm. I yeah, I, we, we, we don't say our S's. Yeah. And we are, we're healthy. Nothing is happening to us because we don't pronounce our S's, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and so on. So, yeah. Um, yeah, things they like that. They might just that. not know if, you know, there might be a well-meaning professor, but if they're from, exactly. yeah. you know, Spain, yeah, they might not know. Yeah. Yeah, it can be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, in my experience, teachers are not having an evil agenda, right, to to harm, right, um, students and, and so on. That's not the case, right? Um, but I think, again, a lot of these ideologies, deficient ideologies are entrenched, right, in um, the teaching community. And that's problematic. And those are the things we need to challenge. So, Part of my like when I as a teacher educator, right, I'm hoping that we start changing that and that the new generations of teachers, right, have a, a better understanding of, of these dynamics. So, yeah, I think parents need to be, you know, talk to teachers. What's the curriculum? You know, ask your child, what are you learning? What you know, what what happened in the language class? What feedback did you get? Um, right. And then keeping these ideologies in mind and keeping um right, the, the communication going, right, with your child to make sure that, again, that they're not experiencing a lot of negativity, right, um, in their language courses. Right. So I would say for any teachers who are listening to just bring in those Spanish speaking parents into the conversation. I think that would be, I think Lauren and I have to do that. And in the dual immersion school, we're going to send our kids to just bring those parents speaking, uh, sorry, Spanish speaking parents and have a conversation with them because I feel like they're always the ones at a disadvantage. Yeah. We have those English speaking parents who are really worried all the time, but the mm -hmm. Spanish speaking parents are just like, no. And Lauren can tell you her experience. She already has some encounters with uh, Spanish speaking parents who don't want their kids, Lauren's kids to speak Spanish to their kids. They're like, no, they're here to speak English. Mm -hmm. Like just mm -hmm. kind of help with that mindset. Yeah. Both ways, right? From the teacher absolutely. and the Spanish-speaking parent. Absolutely, because a lot of Spanish-speaking parents, yes, absolutely, it's two-way, because they may have 
yeah, they might think, oh, my child, mi hijo no va a aprender español, inglés, right? If they are only yeah. speaking Spanish. I've heard that too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so we need to really also educate parents um, yeah, from that side as well, right? Because they're thinking, oh, we can do Spanish at home. Sometimes I hear that, no, we can do Spanish at home and you do, but I'm like, well, what the research shows us that, you know, if your child can have more opportunities for to expand right. the use of Spanish, it's going to be more helpful. Again, I always tell parents the goal is never to English be perfect. Exactly. And it's never right. to be perfect bilingual balance. We know that doesn't exist, but can we create an oppor- opportunities where they get the optimal right environment which they can get they can grow as much as they can right in the language right. and that yeah it doesn't affect their English at all on the contrary right um the research on dual immersion um programs right it's very clear that when you look at longitudinally the data right the students who attend dual immersion programs show that they do better in English right than students who do what we call transitional bilingual education programs right where the First language is not supported, and the um, right, and it's only yeah, used no. temporarily to until the kid learns English, right? But not with the right. idea of supporting it. It's very clear um, that the longitudinal, like the long-term effects, benefits are greater. Yeah. So yeah, for sure. To conclude, mm-hmm. what would you then say to the child if you could go back and talk little, to little Julio. Julio? What would you tell? Yeah, what would you tell what to would little you say Julio? No. Oh, I never had this question. Oh, I like this question. Um, um, yeah, I think I would tell the younger Julio or Julito, as my family calls me. Um, um, perhaps that um, you know, that people have different beliefs about language, and um, and in our household, we have you know a very um, different way to communicate and that you grow up with these two languages and they're not going to be perfect and it's okay because you're going to continue working on both of your languages, right? Um, and that, yeah, that um, even if your teacher says a snarky comment, you know, um, yes, understand that they are a different belief about what language should look like. Um, so what I want you is to try your best um, study hard, right? Um, and and you're gonna be okay. <laughs> I want to ask a follow-up question because you you brought up the the fact that you took French as well as a third mm-hmm. language. Mm-hmm. Was that a positive experience for you too? Already having two languages you felt comfortable with, mm-hmm. and then just adding a third one was that an asset for you from a personal and professional standpoint? Yeah, no, it has been. It was. Well, first of all, like I loved my, right, always your teacher makes an impact. So my French teacher taught French, Italian, and Spanish. And she spoke them well, like she was from Italy. She lived in Paris for two years. She lived in Madrid for three years. And we thought she was the coolest person ever, right? (laughs) Um, And she was. So I think that part of the inspiration came from her, right? Um, So yeah, it was positive, but also it was an asset to be, because I had metalinguistic awareness, Right. I had a metalinguistic awareness when I was learning French um, and, you know, I took the year of Italian um, and sort of even ex- being exposed to the grammar. I'm like, oh, Spanish works like this or it doesn't work like this. Right. Um, and I was able to make those comparisons. So, um, yeah, it's been a positive experience um, overall. Um, right. There is a, a bilingual effect when you learn another language. Right. And the research has documented that. So, I mean, for me, it was a very positive experience. But again, I had a really 
good teacher, right? And then the other French teacher was really good too. So um, again, teachers matter, right? Um, and what we do as teachers and instructors in the classroom really has an effect. So for me, it was a positive experience, right? Doesn't mean that for other people, it was or was not. But even on our campus, now we have French classes for Spanish speakers, Italian classes for Spanish speakers, right? So I love that because it's sort of acknowledging that your bilingualism is an asset, yeah. right? And that speaking Spanish and English is an asset. And you're going to have certain, it's going to provide you with certain affordances, yeah. right? When you're learning a third language. So yeah, for me, it has been um, a positive experience, especially because the program, the school I was in did not have Spanish classes for me. So in New York City, in the bilingual education, by the way, I ended up being in bilingual education. I never finished that. Um, my When we were returned to New York City, I was doing poetry and literature in Spanish. And then I was, again, placed in the Spanish three course where I was learning how to say cocinar, you know, <laughs> and so on. So, um, so because my high school did not have a Spanish program for people like me, right. then it was at, yeah, it was great to move to and take another language which uh, sort of it worked out pretty well for me <laughs> yeah and so it's so inspirational to have your story here on the podcast because you you're like full circle right <laughs> your situation <laughs> brought you to where you are and you're just giving back by yeah. doing what you love yeah yeah it's great it's such an honor and a privilege to do it yeah <laughs> yeah it's such a good attitude about bilingualism and your bilingualism specifically yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Julio. We're really, really happy that we got the chance to talk really to you. Yeah. yeah, I'm so happy you're doing this podcast. So exciting. Definitely but, look forward to, yeah, to your research as yeah. a reference for us moving forward. Thank you. Thank you so much for all the work you do. It's really, it's really fun to read your, your work. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. To those of you listening from home, thank you so much. And this is it. Stay tuned for another episode of Multilingual Mamas. Thanks again, Julio. Bye. Hello. Bye. If you ever have questions about us or questions about the podcast, go to home and our website at multilingualmamaspodcast.com and click on the link for questions. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram and stay tuned for more episodes of Multilingual Mamas.